Assalamu alaikum, good morning and welcome to Weekend World on The Voice of Islam. My name is Hamad Khan and you're listening live to Weekend World on today, Sunday the 5th of February 2023. And on today's program we're going to be talking about things that have happened in the news over the last few days and I'm very lucky to be joined again um, by uh, my regular guest, Dr. Abdul Aleem. Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Aleem. Thank you for uh, thank you for joining us today. Assalamualaikum. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, and Dr. Aleem, um, always very good to talk to you. Uh, and one uh, thing that we wanted to talk about today was to to I mean catch up on a catch up on a few things, but um, some something caught my eye. Um, in the uh, in a medical journal, the the Lancet, and that was um, it was a paper by a Nigerian uh, professor uh, who um, who's a who's a uh, professor in in Australia actually, and he he wrote about the concept of uh, dignity based practice, and I wanted to explore that a little bit, and I wanted to talk about what uh, uh, what that meant for. Uh, those who who work in global health, because that was the that was really the context in which he w- he was talking about this, um, and uh, uh, the the idea that he puts forward is that um, uh, where uh, individuals are working in the space of global health, and perhaps we can draw draw out these definitions a little bit so that everyone at home can understand exactly what we're talking about. So, I mean, we've spoken many times on on uh, this program, Dr. Leem, about the the idea that um, uh, health infrastructure, health systems in the developing world are are not as good as they are in in um, uh, other parts of the world, in in what we might call the global north, in richer countries, in in so-called more developed countries. And the reasons for those are are many, many fold, from resources through to um, uh, questions of education, questions of staffing resources, and there is there is an approach uh, uh, around what we might call global health work. So that's where individuals are saying, "Okay, I can see that the health infrastructure in this country is not as good. Let's see what we can do to improve it and make it better." And they might say, "Well, okay, well, we'll go there and we'll teach them how it's done. We'll show them how it's done, uh, and then they'll understand um, how how uh, health is supposed to work, and we'll give them some resources, and and then they can um, they can do it better." And inherent within that is a is something of a of a patronizing and paternalistic approach, which says that uh, we know how to do things better, and uh, and and we uh, and all they need to do is to copy what we do, um, and their way of doing medicine will be better. And what it ignores is the um, the knowledge. Uh, that those individuals who who work in that context, and remember, there's doctors and nurses who work um, everywhere in the world, trying to do the best that they can, and limited by resources. And they they are the experts in the care of those patients, of those individuals that they look after. They understand the cultural nuances, um, and they understand the context uh, uh, in in which um, any work needs to be needs to be done, um, and. Uh, the idea that someone from outside can come and impose somehow an infrastructure or a way of doing things, uh, however much it might be based on best practice and evidence in other parts of the world, um, is is simply wrong. 
and and therefore an approach which which says that there is a dignity in that knowledge however how embodied within those individuals who who work in that context um, or even the patients who who um, are looked after in the, in that context and and that's something that needs to be um uh, central to the way in which we approach uh, global health work. So um, I'd like to draw upon your experience, Dr. Aleem, and your reflections on this idea. Yes, uh, thank you, Dr. Amal. Uh, this is a very, very important topic, and I think uh, it really ties back to many of our discussions we have had over the last couple of months on the current uh, crisis of inequality, which lies at the basis of the economic crisis, you know, the runaway and unregulated capitalism that is now shaping societies and undermining democracies across the world. Uh, and also, how does it really affect um, social services, essential social services like education and health and water? Uh, and so I believe that there is a larger background to this discussion on dignity-based approaches to human health as opposed to evidence-based uh, approaches to uh, human health. And the reason why I want to bring in some history to this is because I believe that beginning from the Elma Atta Declaration in 1978 in WHO uh, in Almaty, I think the, the, the issue that everybody should have equal access to healthcare has been the mainstream uh, media and been used as a major flank of health sector reform and health sector efforts across the world. Uh, but the reality has been quite different, and I believe that under the uh, large rhetoric of health care for all and equity for all in terms of health, there was been, there has been an undercurrent of uh, capitalist forces shaping the health care sector across the world. Uh, and this is, of course, um, uh, prevalent and started from health sector modeling and health sector structuring in the northern part of the world and then gradually found its way into the developing part of the world. Um, now, I say this because um, we have talked about this in late 70s and 80s. Uh, one of the world's most successful examples of low infant mortality on lowest per capita income costs was uh, quoted as Kerala in South India. Uh, Sri Lanka had similar history. At very low cost, they had achieved infant mortalities at uh, with uh, Northern European or what you call industrial society. Now, we have similar uh, low uh, infant mortalities in industrial society, mm. but uh, of late, uh, there has been a reversal, and partly I think this reversal, and you know, Dr. Ahmad, you are part of the uh, health system uh, in one of those countries, and I believe that uh, we now are seeing some of the early signs of crisis that has its roots in the 1970 Reagan Thatcher uh, uh, reforms of the economic uh, sector into neoliberal economics. And part of that uh, reform said that uh, states or governments should not have a lot of say in how healthcare sector or even education sector is funded, but that because private sector is much more efficient at providing these services private sector should have a larger say in how these services are provided. And, uh, you know, in one sense, health and sector, health and education sector, social services were commodified. Now, when you uh, started the commodification of essential human rights, that's where the problem actually started. The evidence-based movement 
very positive effects on the fact that uh, a lot of medicine was based on proof and, uh, you know, very highly sophisticated tests and uh, evidence generated through lab results. To, to be able to treat diseases, this has obviously helped a lot in terms of uh, extension of human life expectancy and a general better care of, of human society. But uh, I believe that uh, beginning in the 90s, gradually the, uh, the commodification of health uh, in the education sector has really undermined what we believe and now has been articulated by our academic uh, author. Uh, in terms of dignity-based practice. And the tension between these two approaches is essentially that when you talk about evidence-based evidence practices, there is an assumption that the healthcare provider is uh, without any qualification, uh, without any um, criteria um, uh, in terms of care, is highly qualified to provide care to a patient who is essentially considered to be um, to be un, un, unaware of his or her own uh, circumstances of health. And so this this uh, prepares an unequal ground between the caregiver and the care uh, receiver in terms of power relationship in which the care receiver is supposed to be uh, a passive recipient hmm. and not an equal, active, an equal partner in maintaining or making sure that they have responsibility towards their own health. Uh, and it also negates the, uh, because the dialogue is so unequal, it negates the sense of dignity that each one of us has as being a human and having universal rights which are inalienable in terms of given that in terms of uh, these rights that given to us by God and by by divine by divine uh, design, uh, those very rights are undermined when you get into this kind of a power relationship. I believe that there is um, uh, there was a movement which started even in the development area, uh, development uh, practices, where uh, there was a term uh, coined uh, human-centered approach, as opposed to um, economic-based approach or GDP growth-based approach, where people started saying, let's talk about human happiness and fulfillment rather than economic growth as a main criteria of what you call uh, development or or uh, human progress. And I think that that also equally applies to health sector where um, there is now a resistance to a very, very high level of uh, technical interventions in the human health in which uh, there is violation of dignity of, uh, of a human person because they are totally unaware and powerless in terms of uh, understanding their own condition and their own uh, responsibility towards their health. Now, there's only one area that I can point out where it seems that this has been addressed and has been really uh, coming up uh, to some standards is the area of uh, psycho psychiatry and more in psychotherapy, where increasingly psychotherapists are aware of this unequal relationship and uh, they have now tried to understand that actually the relationship between a caregiver and a care receiver is of uh, what they call a therapeutic alliance. And when you talk about a therapeutic alliance, in alliance, uh, it's not an unequal relationship. It's really both parties trying to benefit each other because the care provider actually learns as much from the care receiver as the care receiver learns from the care provider. So I think that um, in that sense, in the hierarchy of technical knowledge in medical sector, 
uh, psychotherapists are still not considered, uh, mm-hmm. you know, exactly um, uh, experts. But certainly, there has been a movement towards creating a terminology that tries to combine, uh, you know, human dignity with uh, evidence in terms of coming up with a balanced approach. Thank you very much for that, Dr. Lee. And I think it might be helpful to draw out perhaps some examples as well of, of the way in which this is this is a valuable approach to the way in which we practice medicine. And um, and I think you know I can think of a I think of a few um, simple examples. And it, it is it isn't just a question of what happens in the context of global health. It is also a question of what happens in the wider context of the way in which people are treated when it comes to medical care. Because of course, when someone gets ill, <clears throat> when they when they are in hospital, they're unwell. They become scared. They become disempowered. They feel like they don't have control over their over their own life. And that the route from there through to wellness is is one that needs to be um, managed very very carefully. And you know, we we talk about this idea of bedside manner. Um, we talk about this idea that a do- that a doctor needs. It's not just about what you say as a healthcare provider. It's about how you say it. It's about the approach that you take. It's about the fact that you take into account the the beliefs, cultural background, and and, and personal experience of the individual that you are uh, treating or their family. And so this sort of, as you said, human-centered approach is is absolutely critical to the to the way in which we practice modern medicine. It isn't it isn't just about what we call evidence-based medicine. So the evidence may be based on a large study saying that if you give this treatment, the patient is X percentage likely to get better. That doesn't necessarily take into account all the individual nuances of that individual and 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 their. Um, uh, their own lived experience and and uh, what what it's going to take to get them to a place that they accept as better, and so there are lots of assumptions within this as to what people find acceptable, uh, what they would like to have in terms of treatment. If we take an example, for instance, of someone who has um, cancer, perhaps a devastating diagnosis, and they have an understanding of what that cancer means, but they also have a very clear understanding because they live it of what cancer means to them, the pain that it causes them, the disability that it may cause them. And getting from that point to a point of wellness is the the uh, critical thing that needs to be achieved through that um, provision of healthcare. Um, simply saying, we will give you this treatment and it will make your cancer X amount smaller or uh, reduce uh, this symptom or that symptom is is not the whole story as far as the person who's suffering is concerned. And uh, Khalil, if I can, and we're also joined by Khalil Yusuf, by the way, a regular contributor. He's here in the studio with me, uh, with me as well. And, and Khalil rec- recognised that as it, within this conversation, um, I'm, I'm uh, obviously uh, Dr. Lee and I are speaking as two healthcare practitioners. Um, but it, but it, 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 in your context, as someone who advocates for people being a lawyer as you are, but also someone who, who would understand in terms of um, any personal experiences you may have um, of, of what it means to have to go through a healthcare process and the reduction in dignity that that involves. Perhaps you can, you can comment on, on this idea of a dignity-based approach to health. Well, I guess, you know, everyone is entitled to human dignity. And I think that the uh, practice of any profession, whether that's medicine or anything else, has to take into account the manner in which that uh, service is delivered. And so 
uh, you have to take into account not just the needs of the patient, but actually also the needs of dependents and those family members who are also part of that process because the practice of medicine doesn't just affect often one person, often it affects many people, including dependents. And so making sure that the medical profession can take into account those parallel needs, I think, is also one of the questions that we have to think about. And there are lots of uh, competing uh, pressures uh, in trying to deliver, uh, you know, kind of a solutions-based approach to medicine. Um, but part of that, I suppose, will have to be taking into account the needs of the patient and the desires of the patient and also the desires of family members who, uh, subject to what the patient wants, um, also might have an influence in that process. Thank you for that, Khalil. Uh, and I guess, Dr. Aleem, it really comes down to the, uh, this idea of who defines what wellness is as, as, as well. Um, so from the patient's point of view, you know, it's it's the outcomes that are expected. I, I as a doctor, may say, well, they we're looking for this outcome, and the, and the patient says, well, hang on a second, that isn't necessarily the outcome that, that I would like. Um, and that's really critical. Um, and I guess this is this is also an area that that is is um, really deserving of some attention and some thought as well. Indeed, um, I think that uh, one example that I would like to quote is the general complaint among doctors about not being well treated by hospital administrators. And mm. uh, you know we have lots of uh, television medical series in which we watch. Uh, how the medical administrators, who may or may not be doctors themselves, in most cases they are probably not, uh, manage hospitals essentially from a point of view of profit. And this is largely true for uh, profit, profit sector, health profit sector in many parts of the world, certainly more so in developing countries where there's a very small amount of regulation. Uh, but certainly I think that um, the fact that uh, medical administrators sometimes have a say in uh, in terms of what will happen to patient uh, procedures and well-being is a very critical area where uh, many doctors have had problems with uh, hospital administration. And this, I believe, uh, illustrates the, uh, the, the overall problem within the health sector where we talk about commodification of health and use of health sector as a major sector where profits are generated. Uh, and I believe that uh, medical education has also been affected by this very um, uh, underlying trend over the last 30 to 40 years, where we are trained as doctors and being hugely um, prepared and uh, indoctrinated into being highly specialized technical experts. Now, I have nothing against being technical experts, but certainly I think there is a certain lack of understanding of human nature, uh, human psychological and uh, neurophysiological processes, uh, and in general, what happens to populations who live in poverty and their experience of societal trauma and the conditions that shape their health. Um, at least I don't remember in my five years of education uh, where we certainly did epidemiology and demographics because we were a more public health-oriented medical degree. I don't really, really at all remember any um, training on understanding of human emotions, of what happens to people when they're in hospitals in terms of what trauma they go through, uh, how do you really understand and bring up uh, an issue, a sort of pretty weird therapeutic alliance with your patient, and how do you really undertake um, attitudes and practices which uh, which, dignity, which actually honor the dignity of, of the 
patient. Uh, and there I believe that um, you, that medical education has lapped in uh, and, and has lost uh, touch with the, uh, the human side of uh, medical practice. And that continues so because I think that the current structure and, and models of health sector essentially have been drawn more and more close to being a profit-driven sector rather than uh, really a human service. And that is an unfortunate turn of events. Uh, I believe many of us who practice, uh, have been practicing and still want and would like very much to return to human-centeredness and his uh, care of patients. But I think we are also driven a lot by uh, seeing us in terms of ourselves and being highly technically specialized and perhaps not even having enough time because hospitals have become almost like an industry where you actually have um, uh, you know, uh, 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 an assembly line of patients coming through and going out. Uh, it's almost like an industry. So the question is not about how much quality time you're able to spend with the patient, but how soon can you diagnose and get the patient out of the hospital is what really concerns us. So I think we are missing the relational part of healing in our practices now, which is a sad group. And that, I think, lies at the basis of the tension between dignity and uh, evidence Thank you for that, Dr. Leem. And, and finally, the sort of final part of the jigsaw of this around this question of global health is, I mean, you, you mentioned the fact that um, in terms of infant mortality, um, Kerala had made breakthroughs very early on in reducing infant mortality. And the fact that the an, an approach which is embodied in an understanding of the local culture, not just of the community, but also of the healthcare practitioners and their knowledge and their understanding of their patients and their patients' needs is absolutely critical, which is which is not to say that there isn't a global health approach which helps to draw out where challenges might sit, um, but that uh, any approach to fixing the problem needs to be led by um, that community themselves and the community of practitioners and patients, and I, and I think that's a that's a really important um, part part of this. And I wonder if you could reflect on that. You mentioned Kerala, other examples. Um, uh, if there are any of of that sort of approach, which makes a a big difference to the way in which um, medicine is practiced around the world, rather than transposing a Western model, as it were, of of medicine onto uh, a different and, and wrong context. Uh, yes, I, uh, you know, it is, it's a very interesting point because, um, you know, the political economy of health is a very, very important and interesting area to work with. I've quoted Canada, Sri Lanka, and I must also quote Cuba. Now, mm. I may be going in a direction which is not very popular in, uh, post, in, in the societies which, which looks at socialism as sort of a red herring in uh, human society's development. But certainly, um, one of the very important points that is raised about some of these countries managing their health and coming up with low infant mortalities very early in their uh, in their national life is attributed to some of the socialist influences that were part of the political process um, in these in these areas. Certainly, in Kerala, there was a huge amount of socialist early socialist influence that shaped the um, the state policy, and so. Because community health practice and physicians are a part of the cog, uh, the overall cog of the political economy, 
the attitudes of physicians and community health practitioners essentially is determined by the overall milling in which they operate. And if there is a political consensus among the policymakers that a human human health, right to human health is with dignity is a basic human right, and that is enshrined and becomes a part of the political uh, process in, in that geographical entity, then uh, the whole attitude towards provision of care is, is very different from uh, the provision of care in societies which see health as a commodity or as a means of making profit over people's health. So I believe that uh, you know our attitudes are also part of the large machinery which is shaped by very large political economic forces that we sometimes don't foresee or sometimes even don't study. So, uh, you know, interestingly enough, uh, Lancet has uh, published this piece, but if you find, if you go back 10, 20 years, Lancet has been publishing these pieces as opinion, uh, opinion, well, opinion makers for a while now. But mm. the debate, to me, is still very, very superficial from the point of view of uh, uh, people in the health sector going deep down into the political economy of health sector development and structuring of health models in different countries to try and understand what kind of uh, structure pre- structural pressures actually operate on them and on their own practices, how their own vision of providing care is shaped by the society they live in. And that, I think, is an area which has not been really understood very well by medical practitioners themselves. Uh, thank you very much for that, Dr. Lehman. And I guess the the final part of that, I mean, you, you talk about the the economic landscape. We know that, and we talk we talked about this on the on the last program. We know that many of the the um, the drivers of uh, economic development are embedded within this system of loans. Um, which are which are driven by organisations such as the World Bank, and and clearly, when an organisation such as the World Bank gives money for the building of a hospital, or for the development of health infrastructure, the endpoints that they are looking at are are dictated by them, rather than by, um, uh, rather than by local politicians or local healthcare workers or 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 by the local population. So so. Again, a, a reflection on the fact that this this essentially becomes then an external uh, dictator of what is to be achieved with the money that is that is being presented, rather than giving ownership of that directly to the individuals within that community. That's a brilliant point, Dr. Ahmad, and I'm very glad that you mentioned that because uh, we have talked a lot about in my uh, career in terms of uh, what we call perverse accountability. And uh, by that, I mean the fact that a very large state sector with a very small amount of money, which forms a part of the budget in uh, many uh, pre-industrializing uh, countries, exercises a, a disproportionate amount of influence on the policy. So uh, the international financial institutions, in some cases, even the United Nations, it's an it's agencies, will bring in a few million dollars, but because those few million dollars are related to that country being seen as a reliable partner in international development or sort of supplies uh, a huge amount of influence on how policy making actually happens in many of the industrializing societies or developing parts of the world. And that essentially means that um, because of the money that comes from abroad, the accountabilities of local politicians and local lawmakers are sort of perverse in terms of 
them having been having been held accountable to uh, foreign parliaments and foreign uh, international institutions. Uh, and so it is very difficult, and this exposes policymaking to a very serious fragmentation process in which it is very difficult to formulate policies because obviously due to its own corruption and this governance, developing countries do not have enough revenue or resources to actually exercise substantive sovereignty. And that uh, actually affects any policymaking process. And therefore, uh, what you're describing is a very, very interesting and actual example of why some of this policymaking process doesn't work and also uh, why increasingly there is a criticism of the aid sector in terms of not mm. being able to achieve the results that it uh, it uh, sets off to start with. Thank you very much uh, for that, Dr. Aleem. And, and before we, we move uh, on to the next topic for discussion uh, in the first hour of the program, Khalil, if I can bring you in here. I mean, do we, we uh, these are broadly speaking, subjects that we've talked about many times on, on this program as well, also questions of of justice. And, you know, we've we've also spoken about the fact that um, His Holiness, the worldwide head of the Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Masoor Ahmed, has, has spoken about the idea of justice being the one of the key um, factors, one of the one of the critical points which are important for us to develop as as a human society and to engage with and uh, each other as communities and and to really forge forward in terms of of bringing about peace and and i guess this is this is another dimension of that and i think it's really really fascinating to think about that when we talk about justice it cannot just be defined by my measure of justice it needs to be what what is a shared understanding of what justice is and how that's to be achieved? I mean that's right. I mean justice in itself, I guess, is a really complex word, isn't it? It means all sorts of things, and what it's essentially saying is that people should get what they deserve, and how you define what they deserve is based on different principles of morality. It's based on law. It's based on religion actually, you know, which uh, some would say is what underlies modern day law. So, but I think the important thing is that uh, decisions should be made based uh, not on the identity of the individual, but actually on what is the right thing to do Mm. given those circumstances. And that's actually a theme that will likely crop up in subsequent <laughs> discussions we're going to be having today. But, yeah, but yeah. yeah, I think that's that's the basis of it. Thank you very much for that, Khalil. And um, not to put the brakes on and, and um, make a screeching uh, sort of change of direction in, in the topic, I think very much based around the idea of justice. But um, we seg into another very, very serious, actually, challenge. And we're, we're going to talk about um, one aspect of the... Uh, of the challenges within the Middle East, the uh, Israeli and Palestinian problem. And I, and I mean, I want to start off, we've spoken about this before, but I want to start off by saying, obviously, the Voice of Islam, we're, we're an Islamic um, radio station. And um, uh, you know, there, there is perhaps a, an implicit criticism from some people that, oh, because you are Muslims and this is an Islamic um, radio station, then you are you are going to be critical of of Jews just because they're Jews. It's going to be a religion versus religion thing, and I, I, 
just want to make clear from the very beginning of this of this discussion that that is absolutely not the case and that that this is a question of justice and it's a question of the rights of of individuals and and if in this following discussion we are we're critical it's we're critical of individuals working within a system we're critical of political systems not of a religion or of a country just by dint of its very existence but to move the move the conversation forward, I mean, it, this conversation this week is sparked by the fact that there is a, a, a Labour politician who has been criticised. Uh, she was criticised for the fact that she had made a statement in Parliament, um, and the statement was um, as follows. It was a question to the Prime Minister, actually. Um, Since the election of the fascist Israeli government in December last year, there's been an increase in human rights violations against Palestinian civilians, including children. Can the prime minister tell us how he is challenging what Amnesty and other human rights organizations are referring to as an apartheid state? Now, she was forced to apologize for that comment mainly on the basis of the fact that she had used the term apartheid and that was um, considered to be um, unacceptable. Now, I want to explore this issue and I want to explore this idea and, and uh, Dr. Liam also bring bring you into this discussion as well. And I, I guess the first thing today it, it, to, to do is to, to sort of think about definitions a little bit. And I, I always like to reflect on... Um, the the English word privilege, defined as it is from the from the French, old French, and privilege literally means private law. And it's the idea that certain individuals have their own rules or their own laws and, and um the rest of society, uh, the main part of society, um has to um has to abide by a different set of laws. And the Afrikaans word apartheid is also very interesting when you when you look at its its literal meaning and it just means apartness or aparthood uh, which is to say that there is a there is a group of individuals who are separate who are intrinsically different and therefore they must be treated differently and therefore a different set of rules uh, which again goes to the heart of this idea of privilege, a different set of rules applies to that group. And so in doing this, what we are doing is essentially and intrinsically um, buying into the idea of a racist worldview, which is to say that certain individuals on the basis of differences, um, whether they are um, ethnic or religious differences, are to be treated differently. And this is extremely problematic. And of course, in the case of the government in Israel, this has led to significant problems when it comes to their treatment of uh, Palestinian people. And I'm I'm not going to get into the uh, ins and outs of uh, the the political questions within within um, Israel and, and therefore uh, Palestine. Uh, but uh, I mean, it it is enough perhaps to state that the united uh, the the uh, united nations human rights office of the high commissioner amnesty international um, israeli human rights uh, organizations such as yedin and human rights watch have 
all pointed to the fact that the way in which Palestinians are being treated within Israel and within the occupied territories around Israel is a form of apartheid, which is to say they are being treated differently and worse than uh, Israeli citizens uh, who are Jewish. And this has led to um, the capture of land. This has led to arbitrary arrests. This has led to... um, uh, the punishment of groups of individuals, um, all of which are things which uh, which are against international law. They're all things which have been criticized by the United Nations and sanctioned by the United Nations, uh, but they continue. And calling that out should not be wrong. And saying that that is, that is wrong wherever it occurs in the world. Um, and certainly here on, on this program, we have called out many countries um, around the world for similar treatments of of um, individual groups, uh, we've called out Pakistan on many many occasions as as having the same sort of um, nationalistic fascist uh, ideology, which leads to forms of apartheid. And so, uh, I mean, I guess the first question, Khalil, if I if I go to you, it it, it is one of the issues, I guess, with this is um, political censorship. A politician says something which is. On the face of it, none of her statement was wrong. She was actually just stating facts. Amnesty International has said that there is a form of apartheid in Israel. Um, and there has been the election of a government in Israel who has right-wing and fascist tendencies and groups of individuals within it who who uh, are, are of that ilk. N- none of these things can be um, said to be untrue. and And yet... And perhaps because of the because of the recent history of the Labour Party, um, she's been uh, she's been made to withdraw that statement. I mean, what 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 are your immediate thoughts on that on that political dimension of it? Gosh, that's such a difficult question. I know. I'm sorry. I'm putting you um, on the spot here. <laughs> it's uh, okay. Let's go back to the definition of mm. apartheid. Um, so, apartheid is racial segregation. And it means that particular groups of people are only entitled to certain facilities in certain places and at certain times. And, and we know it most commonly from South Africa. Right. From the 40s up until the, yeah. the 90s, I think. You know, yeah. It was based on legislation and it, it's distinctly defined white people, black people, colored people and distinguished between their rights. Mm. Technically, that's not entirely the same with Israel because you have Arabs who are citizens yeah. of Israel and they live on the Israeli side yeah. Yeah. and they are entitled to, broadly speaking, uh, similar rights, mm-hmm. you know, water and electricity, etc. that other Jews get. So you, you would say that even though it's a small proportion, um, there isn't a strict level of apartheid in the same way there was in South Africa. Yeah. However... Uh, it is true that Palestinians in that region are weak and have been weakened and remain weakened by the systems that are in place uh, uh, over, over which Israel has control. Mm. And part of the reason why that is happening is likely to be because both parties are in conflict. Uh, they are in intractable conflict, which has been going on now for uh, decades. And the Israelis feel that 
they need, I suppose, to keep their opponent as weak as possible. Because if they don't, and their opponent is strengthened, then that puts them and their safety and security and their objectives at risk. So, yeah. So the question is: the question is, given that circumstance, how do first of all those two parties deal with it? Second of all, how do those parties, those countries within that region deal with it? Mm. And thirdly, how does the international community deal with it? And that, I guess, is a is a question for us to discuss. That, that's the that's the bigger question rather than just this being just a question of criticism. And and thank you for that, Khalil. Thank you for opening that conversation up. And and Dr. Aleem, if I can bring you in at this point, I mean, uh, so uh, Khalil's uh, question to us is how do we how do we all deal with it? Um, both both on the ground and and um, between those uh, individual players, uh, political players within Israel and Palestine, but also the international community as well, and the and the wider and the wider community. You know, because we all have a political voice. We all try to make that political voice heard in order to enact change. <clears throat> and there are obviously powerful players in terms of the media and the way in which these things are uh, are uh, narrated. To the vast majority of people, which, which again brings us to this question of you know political censorship and and the power of political censorship because that that um, also forms part of the narrative of you know should we should we criticize you know if it was another country would we not criticize and say that this is wrong and this is bad and there are certainly many countries around the world where the political narrative goes in in a very different direction. Indeed, um, I think that. Um one of the things that we have discussed, and I think Felipe uh, has uh, pointed towards that, is that the uh, international community has gradually moved away from, uh, you know, the, the use of term apartheid, which was originally used in the South African context, and uh, has moved on to develop a more universal legal prohibition against this practice, recognized it again as a crime against humanity with definitions provided in 1973. International Convention on Suppression and Punishment of the Crime of Apartheid. This mm. Apartheid Convention and the 1998 Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. Mm. Uh, and, and both these facts now actually point to the fact that um, uh, the original context of racial discrimination has in fact been overridden by a larger definition of apartheid, which uh, in fact now talks about a larger set of circumstances which mm. qualify for that I think we need to distinguish that, and the the reports of Amnesty International and the Human Rights Watch, and even the human rights agencies within Israel, actually are quite correct when they apply the uh, term of apartheid on the current circumstances in parts of Israel, uh, including the the areas which are inherited by by Palestinians, the occupied Palestinian territory. And the second thing I want to say is that when we use the word uh, conflict, I think we are um, sometimes uh, uh, using a false equivalent in terms of parties being involved. Uh, there is a large, a large equal number of population that is in fact under those kinds of systems and rules that oppress them, as opposed to uh, a system of government that has actually carried on these practices. So we are talking about uh, uh, sometimes a false equivalence in terms of conflict because this is not a conflict. This is really a, a larger question of, uh, you know, uh, occupation of a territory where original people were expelled from that territory, and I believe that uh, the uh, the uh, political representative in the UK was essentially trying to capture that process, uh, 
Mm-hmm. In fact, it's not just her. Even in the U.S., you know, recently, Ilhan Omar, who's one of the members of Congress, was uh, expelled from Foreign Relations Committee in the U.S. because she had also spoken about uh, the the apartheid, uh, mm. apartheid in Israel. So it's not just the U.K. I think it's also in the U.S.A. that this has happened, and, and I believe that um, the the question of uh, of uh, this uh, uh, this being conflated now with anti-Semitism is, is a real problem. I think that's what you're mentioning too mm. when you say that there is a uh, is a problem problem of using and conflation of terminology that really complicate the issue and uh, create a muddle uh, which does not allow us to see the situation more clearly. Now, if you look at the uh, IHRA, it's um, it's one of the the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, uh, which says that uh, anti-Semitism, um, uh, you know, basically any uh, anti-Jewish uh, acts of hatred or classifying Jews as, you know, uh, influencing pharmaceutical industries or other industries that uh, that are sort of a conspiratorial context. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but obviously there is a huge difference between. Um, so the, the idea of anti-Semitism is sometimes uh, conflated with the idea of, uh, of uh, uh, anti-Zionism. And I think those two have to be fully clarified mm. if we have to really uh, get into the actual discussion in terms of why uh, certain elements are being used to, in fact, suppress the debate. And you know that uh, the uh, the uh, IHRA uh, definition has been used in many parts of Europe, including the UK, mm. where this has had a chilling effect on any discussion on Palestinian rights. Uh, in fact, uh, speakers have been debarred. Uh, you know, discussions have been uh, terminated. And in in uh, in uh, recently in Sweden, you know that um, uh, you know there was an incident of Quran burning, which was Islamophobic, but that was not banned. But uh, somebody else speaking, uh, you know, uh, against uh, uh, the state of Israel or the Holocaust would have been uh, arrested. Uh, so I think there is a there is a problem here that we need to uh, unthread a bit in terms of uh, how these two terms get uh, conflated and how this creates confusion. And I'm sure Khalilza uh, or you should be Khalilza uh, would be able to try get us to a better clear picture as the legal background, uh, you know, uh, is, allows that. Th- thank you for that, Dr. Lehman. And, and Khalil, back to you. I mean, there is so two challenges here, really. One, <clears throat> I'm very grateful to Dr. Lehman for the clarification of the question of the definition of apartheid and the fact that it has evolved since since um, it, its clear use in, in South Africa's racist um, uh, connotations and, and uh, say, it was enshrined in law in in South Africa, but I guess that there's there's now a wider and broader meaning of that. But this this other question uh, beyond that of the the delicacy with which we uh, find ourselves in from a from the perspective of um, in in defence of Palestinian rights, and we sort of we can talk about the the challenges and the issues for. Palestine's in that part of the world, whether it comes to the question of uh, not being able to have freedom of movement, having uh, poor 
infrastructure in terms of um, schooling, in terms of electricity, water, healthcare, um, whether it is challenges around uh, being um, moved out of their houses, whether it is the fact that um, settlements of um, Israeli citizens on Palestinian land has led to uh, Palestinians being being thrown off their own land and and uh, uh, and uh, essentially being dispossessed of their of their own uh, of their own properties. All all of these are incredibly uh, problematic issues and and really grave human rights concerns in regards to the plight of Palestinians. And uh, I think we have to remember that that whilst the majority of Palestinians are Muslims, not all of them are. There are also uh, uh, Christians amongst that amongst that group as well. In in highlighting those um, uh, human rights abuses, um, there is a, there's a, a risk that individuals are being called out as being anti-Semitic, um, which I, I, I guess uh, Dr. Alim is, is pointing out that, that that should not be the case, and we need to tread through this all very very carefully, and that that goes to the heart of of the the challenge from a political perspective. Uh, that individual politicians are censured uh, because they speak out for Palestinian rights, as we've seen with this Labour MP, um, and and we've seen with the with the American politician Ilhan Omar as well. Um, so your your reflections and thoughts on that? So actually, the solution is really rather simple, um, and the solution is that. Um, there should be a very clear and honest connection between man and his creator. Mm. Now, why is that? I mean, it sounds like such a flippant thing to say, uh, but it isn't because when you have a strong connection between man and his creator, the natural corollary of that is that because of that relationship, you deal with friends and foes with justice. Yeah. And when you do that... Not only uh, is the, the the parties involved behave differently, but those parties who are advocating for justice also behave differently, mm -hmm. uh, which means that we are able to speak out on these issues. And, and let me maybe do that. Let me speak out on these issues and mm -hmm. say what we really feel is the problem here. And the problem is that there is a huge imbalance between the Palestinians and the Israelis. Um, and it is extremely unfortunate that Muslim countries are no longer united. Mm. I mean, that is a big part of this problem. There are members of the public, there are citizens fighting with governments, governments inflicting cruelty on the public. And so there is not only this lack of unity, but there are huge amounts of injustice and cruelties that are being perpetrated. And that is in part as a result of the lack of unity mm. amongst these uh, Muslim countries, which is something that is then exploited by others. And so if Muslims unite themselves and if they follow the path of God, then with that collective strength, uh, Muslim nations can help to resolve this issue. I mean, the truth is that actually there is a, 
as I said earlier on, there is a huge imbalance in power. Compared to Israel, the Palestinians don't have any mm. power or strength. And so if you have one party that is perpetrating cruelty, Hamas, for example, mm. you know, have been declared a terrorist group, and it may well be that the, the Israelis say that they are perpetrating cruelties, then, then of course that would stop. But it is very different in terms of the power that Hamas has mm. compared to the power that the Israelis have. And so it's not just for Muslim nations and individual Muslims to stand up and protest. I mean, I think countries need to unite. Mm. And I think they need to speak the truth. And they need to deal with friends and foes with the justice that Islam requires. I mean, the final point I can make is that, you know, prayer is important. Mm. And we should continue to pray for uh, those victims on both sides, you know, not just uh, Palestinians, but Israelis as well, uh, Jews as well, anybody who is subject to injustice or who's being harmed. You know, we pray for that their suffering is re uh, relieved and that the uh, conflicts can be resolved, I, I hope, at some point in the near future. Mm. That, thank you for that, uh, for that very much, uh, Khalil, and a, a very balanced view on, on this. And um, Dr. Alim, if I can just bring you back for the last couple of minutes of this of uh, this conversation and just in terms of uh, actually Khalil puts forward a very good point about about protest about how we respond to it and and has put forward the 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 thought which I think most of us would agree with that that a balanced approach that redresses the rights of of individuals and uh, but also a, a united approach by Muslim countries um, is is absolutely critical to this but in general, in terms of this question of political protest and and um, how we should uh, address our, uh, the the grievance of um, the question of of what is happening with the Palestinian uh, people, um, I I don't think there's anyone here who would ever uh, sit and justify the actions of of um, individuals on the Palestinian side, um, uh, such as the the followers of or some followers of uh, Hamas who who would engage in um in violence in order to try and redress this question of the the lack of rights of the Palestinian people so what what are legitimate forms of of protest and making your voice heard yes, i think that uh, uh, points us out in uh, you know uh, the current head of the Ahmadiyya movement uh, and in fact the uh, uh, before that have pointed out um, some of the solutions and uh, nothing could illustrate this better than the Ahmadiyya community that actually still resides in Israel and has in fact flourished uh, despite all the uh, the uh, issues that we uh, that are faced by other Muslims in Israel. That is not to say that uh, they are not suffering but the fact is that there is an approach possible whereby you are able to exercise uh, your uh, liberty and your rights, uh, and voice your concerns within uh, with with uh, with a peaceful uh, with a peaceful means. And I think that uh, in, of late, um, there has been uh, movements in in Palestine and by Palestinian people who protest in peaceful ways in terms of not uh, wanting to take this into into uh, violent forms of, of protest. Uh, but I do believe that. Uh, as we said, uh, the head of the Ahmadi movement has called for absolute justice, uh, which is based on the Quranic verse that when you govern among people, you must govern with uh, absolute justice. 
and that has no uh, there is no other solution other than this where you actually try and diffuse a, a problem or a conflict or uh, you know an old standing historical problem uh, with uh, applying the standards that uh, the quran prescribes and that involves a, a major rethink of of uh, through major rethink by the politicians who are involved in this and trying to take it to uh, an amicable solution Thank you very much for that, Dr. Lee. We're coming up to the end of the first hour of the program, and uh, I'd just like to wrap things up at this point. So uh, first of all, I'd like to thank Dr. Abdul Lim for uh, contributing to the first to, uh, to this first hour uh, of the program and the conversation. Really fascinating. Always good to speak with you, uh, Dr. Lehman, and, and hear your thoughts. Um, a really um, useful and fruitful discussion. So thank you very much for your contribution. Thank you. And... Um, you're listening to Weekend World on the Voice of Islam. The time is now 10.58, coming up to 10.59. Now, if you're listening to Weekend World, and we're here, um, certainly I'm here every other every other Sunday, uh, and you can listen to this program live. But if you miss any of it, you can go to SoundCloud and search for Voice of Islam and then search for Weekend World, and you'll find us there, and you can listen to uh, the back catalog. You can listen to uh, Khalil Yusuf's dulcet tones um, uh, to, to as much as you like. You can replay bits. It's always, it's always great to, uh, to listen back as well to, to conversations that have, been, that have been had. So there's an opportunity there. If you want to comment, you can tweet at us. If you're on Twitter, you can tweet at Voice of Islam UK. And, and that's our Twitter account. And you can uh, let us know what you think, what are your thoughts on it. And if you are feeling particularly passionate, you can always give us a call, 0286877878. So someone calls through, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, take that, uh, we'll take that call and hear your, your thoughts and opinions as well. Um, so we're coming up to the news now. So I'd like to, um, again, thank Dr. Abdul Lim. Uh, for his uh, for his contributions, the first hour of the program, and Khalil Yusuf, who will who will still be here after the news. Um, so stay tuned and uh, keep listening to Weekend World. Assalamualaikum. Welcome back to Weekend World on the Voice of Islam, and um, you're listening to um, uh, Weekend World live here on on the Voice of Islam. The time is two minutes past eleven on today, Sunday, the fifth of February, two thousand and twenty-three. And in the first hour of the program, we had the opportunity to listen to contributions from Dr. Abdul Alim and Khalil Yusuf on the topics of a dignity-based healthcare and on the challenges within um, Israel and, and Palestine, um, and and a and a thoughtful approach to uh, how these issues might be moved forward and unresolved. Uh, but now it's eleven o'clock. And we have the opportunity to speak with Mahmoud Ahmed, our contributor from the United States. And uh, assalamu alaikum, Mahmoud. Thank you for joining us this morning. Assalamu alaikum. Good morning. Nice to be here. Very good to hear you. And uh, we've we've only got about 20 minutes to go through all of our lovely topics on uh, what's been happening in the States, Mahmoud. Um, but always, always good to speak to you. And uh, I mean, I don't know where to start, but I mean, I mean, one thing which has been front and center of the of the news coming to us from across the Atlantic has been this really sad report of um, uh, a uh, an African American called Tyree Nichols who who died. He was killed, um, uh, or, or he he was. Um, 
beaten by uh, police officers, six police officers, uh, when he was stopped um, in his car. It's, it seems like such a familiar, almost a trope. It, it's uh, a black man gets stopped by police, um, gets told to get out of his car, and subsequently dies. Um, and five police officers were suspended. Now, sixth has also been has been fired. The the difference here is that the initial five who were removed from service were were black police officers, and this has caused quite a lot of angst in the states because this often it it is framed as being a question of race and racism. White officer stops black individual black individual dies or is abused. And in this case, it was, for the most part, black officers who were involved. Um, Tyree Nichols was, was subsequently died in, in hospital a few, day, a few days later, and, and the video showing what happened was released as well. And, and it, it is, um, from all accounts, pretty horrifying to watch. But Mahmoud, your your immediate thoughts on, on this and, and what it has meant in terms of this narrative around uh, police and police brutality in in the United States, because this, this idea for us here in the UK, that an individual might be stopped by the police for a traffic offence and then subsequently die is is horrifying. I mean it's 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 beyond it's beyond belief. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a you know a absolute tragedy and, and and atrocity quite quite candidly. And I think you know in the United States these days, you know it's it's these you know the the, the police brutality events and the, and the mass shootings, right? They both evoke that sense of just senseless, uh, avoidable uh, tragedy. And the police brutality, frankly, you know, even more so, right? G given that it is coming from the very people who are charged with protecting, uh, you know, in, in, in the, the the people of, of the country, as opposed to uh, carrying out a horrendous act like this. What you said about the race of the officers is obviously really interesting, and something that did get a lot of, um, you know traction in terms of people re reflecting on it in the initial days after the tragedy. Um, and, you know, one thing that was, I think, put front and center is that the scholarly research and study that has been done around this has demonstrated, you know, for, for decades now, that it is not the race of the officers who, you know, perform these acts uh, that is determinative, but instead uh, frankly, only the race of the people who are victimized. Mm. And so what that you know, evokes is that this is really a structural problem um, that is, 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 is being addressed, where, you know, the, the, the culture as a whole, uh, and, 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 you know, the, the unfortunate thing is even the police as a whole, uh, have been conditioned to believe that the life of someone who is African-American uh, is is worth much less, and mm -hmm. that it is um, you know it's somehow appropriate and acceptable uh, to 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 do something like this, to behave like this towards an African American, e even when that same person would never do so uh, towards someone who is Caucasian. Thank you for that, and Khalil. I mean, such a such a tragic case, but 
one of one of many, sadly, and and really problematic. And as I say, it would be not something that we would consider to be normal if it happened in this country. But nonetheless, there there have been criticisms of the UK police around in, entrenched institutional racism. Um, so, so part of a wider problem um, as far as the question of the the treatment of of ethnic minorities by by the police is concerned. And but your thoughts on this? So, can I say that I don't think it's a question of race. Actually, um, mm. I think it's very different to that. I mean, I think that although there are many many instances of racism, you know, within within all sorts of public services. I mm. think this is not an example of that as such. Although you, you can have racism actually within uh within uh you know different parts of, of a similar racial group. I think what's happened here is that you have an environment, Memphis, uh, which actually has very high levels of crime. And these particular officers were part of, a, as I understand it, a unit called a Scorpion unit, which had been disbanded the day before, um, which had been charged with dealing with crimes, many of which go unsolved. I understand in 2021, only 39% of murders were solved in Memphis, mm. and it has one of the highest crime rates in America. And what's the consequence of that? Well, the consequence of that is that the if you don't have the police solving crimes then you lose confidence in the police and if you lose confidence in the police then people resolve their own disputes mm. and you have an increasing level of lawlessness and then when you have an increasing level of law lawlessness you then have more robust policing heavy-handed policing and then the establishment of groups like the school or departments like the uh, Scorpion unit, mm. for example, that is charged with trying to deal with these sorts of crimes. So, you know, you have this vicious cycle in which uh, a lack of focus on dealing with this word that we seem to be mentioning all the time on our programs, dealing with matters with justice, creates mm. these huge injustices. And it is a horrific video uh, and if it, if you if you even just hear the audio, actually mm. sometimes you it, it, you get an, a, an even more of an impact when you just hear mm. the audio mm. and you hear this guy uh, uh, Tyree Nichols calling for his mother and uh, you know saying I haven't done anything wrong. Mm. Uh, and it's also why I would say that uh, it's not an issue. I'm, I'm bringing Black Lives Matter up because we've mentioned racism earlier mm. on. Mm -hmm why it's so important that we focus actually on innocent lives matter rather than black lives matter as a political movement. Mm. And that we ensure that uh, there is a real focus on justice and a real focus on ensuring that everybody who is innocent, regardless of race, regardless of mm. background, actually is dealt with fairly, uh, yeah. yeah. Thank you for that, Khalil. And, um Mahmoud, in, invite you to comment on that, and, and very well made points, uh, Khalid. This this question on of whether or not um, the stopping of Tyree Nichols and his treatment was in itself racist or not is one that is obviously very difficult to pick apart because it's an individual an individual case. There were black officers. This was a this was a 
uh, a black individual, a black driver who was who was stopped. Um, and so it becomes very problematic and, and perhaps leads to some bad faith arguments made as well if it is only seen through through that lens. However, I don't think that there is a question that can be denied here, which is that if you are a person of African descent, an African-American, then you are much more likely to be stopped by the police if you're driving in your car and you are much more likely to be subject to police violence. And I think I, I guess that goes to the heart of the problem that many many people have. And with your your thoughts on on that, and and I mean I guess uh, Khalil's wider points very much stands around this question of you know innocent lives matter, and there there is a there is a significant problem here as far as the justice system in the United States is concerned, um, which which means that um, ultimately no one receives justice in a, in a system where the where the uh, police are significantly underperforming in terms of their responsibilities. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's the, those are points well made around uh, the broader issues of policing that ultimately factor into this. So, 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 mm. so I do think it becomes a, a toxic cocktail, right? Where, you know, a, a, un, unfortunately, with much of American life, uh, you know, r- race is is a unavoidable structural factor. Mm. But when you add to that um, the issues that um, Khalid Saab just raised around, uh, you know, the, the the lack of effective policing and the negative spiral that that creates, and, and frankly, that lack of negative policing is also to some extent, uh, you know, fa- a, a, a factor that when, when when you look at it, uh, you know, in the United States. Uh, black and brown communities receive much less effective policing uh, than than Caucasian communities do, uh, and 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 that's also structural to a large extent, and it mm. creates this negative spiral where then you know as Khalid just said, uh, you know the, those 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 communities that the, the police are unable to control those you know the, those the, the elements in them that are committing crimes, and then it leads to this negative spiral. And I will say this is also important. I mean, for the police to spend as much energy as they did here, mm. and frankly, as they do elsewhere, on a traffic issue mm. um, it itself is is, is, is is something that is problematic and should be called into question. Uh, you know, there are, are other far more significant things that the police, you know, can and should be paying attention to. And for, a, you know, high, uh, um, you know, um, in intensity, high profile unit like this, the Scorpion unit, uh, to be, you know, doing this to somebody who is, you know, purportedly committing an act of reckless driving mm-hmm. in, in, in some ways smacks of, you know, a certain level of impotence, uh, you know, to, to, to deal with the problems they were actually created to resolve. Yeah. And they're, and they're yeah. instead, you know, uh, uh, taking out their, 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 their perhaps frustrations on, on this, you know, completely, uh, you know, innocent man who, who uh, otherwise seemingly had done nothing wrong. And, and, and I think, you know, it, unfortunately, something that has become a tragedy and where there's just universal revulsion around what occurred. Thank, thank you very much, and very much, I think, to Khalil's point as well about the fact that it, it is those a negative a negative spiral of um, poor control, um, poor policing, and 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 worsening justice, and and talking about um, 
impotent actions, talking about distractions. A Chinese weather balloon went over the United States and seems to have caused a political fracas way out of proportion to uh, what it should have done. In fact, it, 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 it also appeared to take huge amounts of logistics to... to um, to get it out of the sky as well. I mean, you'd think it would be easy to shoot a balloon down, but apparently not. Um, Mahmoud, your your <laughs> thoughts on this? Yeah, this this has been, you know, perhaps the the, the, the comical and and yet concerning uh, event of the week, um, cer- certainly here in the United States, and, and I gather around the world. Uh, you know, so, so many questions, uh, right? Uh, far more questions than answers at this point. Mm. Uh, a, a curiosity in one way, uh, you know, a balloon that makes its way into the United States. People are asking, how did it, um, you know, get here? Uh, was it detected or, or, or you know, did, did, did the, the military of the United States actually pick up on it? And then, you know, what was it doing here? How did it get here? Identified as Chinese relatively um, quickly, and the Chinese government, interestingly, acknowledged... Mm, they didn't uh, it deny it. Is yeah, it's our balloon. No. Right, right, exactly. Uh, and, and, and yet maintained that it was a weather balloon that had gone off course. Um, the U.S., for its part, maintains very strongly that it was a surveillance balloon, mm. which, of course, begs the question, you know, for a, company, a country like China, which obviously has very advanced capabilities, satellites and so forth, you know, was there really a need for a balloon uh, to carry out such surveillance activities? Uh, and then, of course, the invariable debate around what to do about it and mm. uh, the, the political posturing, which has now become familiar in the United States yeah. with certain uh, Republican politicians saying that, you know, they would personally shoot it down with their own firearms. Uh, which well, is, you know, I mean, I was, laugh- I was laughable. <laughs> I mean, I was going to say it, 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 it plays very much into the hands of um, some conservative politicians in the United States, and you know, it brings to mind the old American adage that you know, good people will gu- with guns are there to stop bad nations with balloons. Um, but you know, in, in all seriousness, I mean, Khalil, if I can bring you in here, we've just got we've just got a couple of minutes. But I mean, this is this isn't about a weather balloon, is it? This this whole thing, Khalil, is is a, is about something more than that. It's about rising tensions between the United yeah. States and China. It's about dominance in the you know South China yeah. Sea actually, yeah. and it's a message that the Chinese are sending. Um, I mean, it's not particularly inconspicuous a balloon, <laughs> uh, but actually, it's a serious business. I mm. mean, you know, uh, uh, balloons are very cheap uh, to uh, launch. Uh, they can go mm. up to sixty thousand feet. You know, they're uh, just on the edges of space, so they don't have atmosphere, and they can stay there for many, many days. And uh, send back pictures, and the difficulty in shooting it down is that there is probably a little bit of debris, and uh, and I guess you know I suppose the authorities could tell everybody to stay in, and, yeah. and there would not be a, an impact of that. But you know it is a it is a serious business, and I think actually lots of countries are investing in uh, this kind of technology in balloons. I, I believe there's a hundred million pound deal that the Brit- Brits are doing on mm. something very similar. Mm. So, um, yeah, serious business. Can I make one other point, actually? Oh, I mean, there's do. just recent recent uh, news today of the passing of uh, General Musharraf, who was mm. the uh, uh, ex-president of the of Pakistan. In the Lillahi thoughts and prayers are with his uh, family and uh, loved ones. Zakala. Thank you for that, Khalil. And, 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 you know, there's... 
one of one of the challenges and and since you've segged into it um and obviously our thoughts and prayers are with with um the family of Pervez Musharraf but one one of the biggest political challenges that um, Pakistan has faced is the question of a of a state within a state and Mahmoud I'll invite you in the in the last minute or so of of, of the program to comment on on this as well and that state is the is the army and its political and and economic power within within the state of Pakistan, within the state of Pakistan, um, and and there has not been a moment in political history in Pakistan where there hasn't been some intervention by uh, by the army. Yeah, absolutely, and I think you know, Pervez Musharraf, uh, you know, was was really an, an emblematic figure in that regard. Frankly, for better and for worse, mm. right? In, in the sense that. You know, he did embody that military interventionist streak that has marred Pakistan's uh, record in terms of being an effective democracy. On the other hand, you know, he also represented someone who, frankly, was able to, in some ways, um, liberalize the country, mm. uh, you know, which, which speaks to the fact that, you know, democratic forces in Pakistan, you know, have not always served that, that country uh, in in the way that one would would have expected and 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 the stability that the country frankly needs, which I think is 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 currently being uh, you know witnessed even with the current political climate in that country and the way that uh, you know ordinary people are suffering and uh, you know pe- pe- people such as the uh, Ahmadi Muslim community are being victimized uh, even in what is otherwise called the democracy. And you know at the end of the day, these two issues that we just talked about. You know the great power conflict between China and the United States, and you know what 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 happened, what's happening in Pakistan, and the role of the military are in some ways connected. And and frankly, you know uh, there, there's a lot of worry for the years ahead, uh, not just for China and the United States, but also for a lot of other countries, including Pakistan, in terms of how they're affected by that conflict and and how they might might get dragged into it, and the consequences that might flow from that. Thank you very much for that, Mahmoud, and and that really brings us to the end of this of this live section of the of the program. So, Mahmoud, thank you very much for your for your contributions today, and always a pleasure to have you on Weekend World. Thank you. Uh, that was uh, Mahmoud Ahmed, our, our American correspondent, and uh, also in the studio today, I had uh, Khalil Yusuf uh, contributing to the program. So that brings us up to the end of the live segment of the program. So again, I'd like to thank you all for listening to Weekend World on the on the Voice of Islam. Coming up next, we are going to have um, the podcast from our colleagues at Rational Religion. So always um, fascinating to listen to that. Um, and uh, again, thank you all for for listening. You can listen again. Uh, on SoundCloud, just search for Weekend World uh, through the Voice of Islam channel. Uh, thank you for listening to Weekend World. If I had to bet on one religion as if I were betting on the stock market for the future, you have to bet on Islam. Mm. The, because Muslims are intolerant. And I'm, not, and I'm not saying that disrespectfully. Because if you're tolerant of everything, then you stand for nothing. Yeah. But Christians are so tolerant now. You don't believe it. They have gay pastors that are, I'm not even anti-gay. But if the book says don't have, like, what, yeah, what yeah. do you believe in now? You're right, yeah, right if, you're tol- if you're tolerant of everything, you stand for nothing. I respect people who stick up for what they believe in. Yeah. It's not even about me believing in it. I respect them because they, they believe and they will defend. Muslims are the only people who will defend their religion. They will defend their beliefs. They refuse to be mocked. Mm-hmm. They refuse to be insulted. And I respect that about them. I respect that. That's an amazing thing about them. 
Peace be upon you. Welcome to Rational Religion. The West has recently seen some high-profile celebrities such as Andrew Tate and the Instagram model Marine El-Himmer convert to Islam. This is seen as potentially emblematic of a wider rejection by native Western people of modern Western values. So we're going to be discussing this. And who, Brother Tahir, are we discussing this with? Um, so we're discussing it with Dr. Abdul Haq Kompier, who is a physician, psychiatrist, designer, and writer. Uh, 20 years ago, converted to the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in Islam. Uh, he has been the editor and designer of uh, the Al-Islam magazine for 10 years and has published on religion and history in Dutch newspapers for the Al-Islam e-Gazette and at the universities of Cambridge and Exeter in England. And you're currently worked, uh, involved deeply with the work of the outreach department in the Netherlands. Um, welcome. Uh, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, so we're going to be specifically looking at this issue that you've already raised, which is that... Um, you know, the, the question of a rejection of modern culture and rejection of modern values, um, it is specifically in the light of one particular thing that uh, one of these individuals who converted to Islam said, Andrew Tate says, is that um, the reason he has turned towards Islam is because he regards it as an intolerant religion and a religion that um, stands for certain values. And that's what he means by the term intolerant. And um, that the West has become so tolerant of and accepting of all different ideas that in actual fact, it has lost any kind of basis and any principles that it may have once stood for. Um, and we wanted to unpick this with you in particular because you wrote a fantastic article, um, which was published in the Al-Islam e-Gazette, and which hopefully we'll be reproducing either a summary or a detailed version of on, on rationalreligion.co.uk soon, um, on the issue of where the West learned the concept of tolerance from. Because today people see Islam as intolerant and the West as tolerant, but what you unearthed and what you've shown in your article is that actually historically it's been the other way round, that actually it's Islam that was considered tolerant and it was the West that prided itself on its intolerance. So getting into that first, just before we get into all of that, I would like to put it to you in terms of your acceptance of Islam. How does this tie into the, the reasons that you accepted Islam and what brought you into the faith? Right. Well, you know, I uh, came in touch with Islam in the late 1990s, and uh, it was a time where uh, Western society was uh, completely uh, felt that all the, the problems were solved, that everything was doing well. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, because it was before the big scare of 2001. Mm -hmm. And um, and uh, so... Uh, what I experienced at that time was, uh, although it seems that there were no, no problems, but uh, also uh, postmodernism was in itself problematic for, um, you know, orienting yourself in the world. So what do you mean by postmodernism, just for people who may not be aware of the concepts that fall under the umbrella term? Right. I was studying in, in the art academy. Okay. And this is when you were a graphic designer. Yeah. And so postmodernism means that every idea and every um, every every opinion uh, or every um, sorry every fact even uh, is subjective. Okay. So what you would notice being a student in the art academy would would be that uh, your concepts of uh, beauty or goodness or truth would be entirely subjective, which in the arts is not such a big problem but in society it is a problem yeah uh, and also for your personal life it's also a problem for mm -hmm. your 
social life as well. Yeah. Because uh, if there's, if there's, if all the truths are subjective, then it is very hard to share them. Mm. And, uh, and it's that sharing that makes us, makes a society, I suppose, the shared common values. Yes, for, for a large part. Yeah. Anyway, I sensed it in my personal life that I was not satisfied with this relativism of postmodernism. Mm. And uh, that's why I was attracted towards Islam, because Islam does show uh, a very clear um, uh, a teachings, a very clear uh, ideas on truth, mm. and uh, has also a beautiful... Uh, art history. So do you, do you sympathize with something with what Andrew Tate said in terms of why he accepted Islam, which is that he regards it, that it has red lines, it has concepts, it has principles that are not continuously shifting in the sand over time. Do you sympathize with that kind of perspective? Yeah. So, you know, 20 years ago when I was uh, studying the subject, then I would, I was attracted to it because uh, maybe because it, uh, the Islam had very, uh, very clear things to say about goodness and beauty and truth. Yeah. And um, I think that now what is happening in this age is that the relativism has gone so far that it has become even more confusing for people mm. and that uh, even our identities are very relative. Yeah. And this is something that maybe causes a reaction. Yeah. Uh, which which would then pr uh, say that they would prefer intolerance over all this tolerance. Right. Although for me, the tolerance was a beautiful aspect of Islam, which attracted me. Yeah. Right. So, so I wonder then if, you know, maybe everyone's going from almost one extreme to the other. Western society went from a very Christian milieu and it developed atheism. And from that came the kind of postmodernism where nothing's objective. God doesn't exist. Everything is subjective. And now that's expanded in its sphere over every aspect of human life. And there's a rejection of that, which is kind of, we need to go back to intolerance. Um, and perhaps some people find that to a degree within Islam, uh, but we are also trying to counter that. So I guess we're talking about the middle well, way here. What they're using the word intolerance for is actually... Um, Objectivity? Just having a position right. which is fixed and being intolerant of a view insofar as not changing your own belief system right. for something else. Remember, tolerance is to accept difference. And Islam in that regard is very tolerant. It accepts difference. And as we're going to discuss from your article, it in actual fact brought tolerance to the West, right? But, um, but in today's world, I suppose what they're using the word intolerant for is a kind of a more of a euphemistic or a kind of colloquial term, which is that it has red lines, that Islam has a position on certain things and expects Muslims to follow by those particular teachings to be called Muslims. Whereas, you know, when you contrast it with the Christian church, you know, there's been a continuous shift um, on any number of social issues right. um, from the time of Henry VIII, even on matters which are more, you know, technical, such as interest and the, the, the permission of interest, you know, historically viewers of our channel will know our position on interest and the position of Islam on interest. We're not big fans, are we? We're not big fans. Yeah. And, and actually the Christian church wasn't a big fan for a very long time and then yeah. decided, oh, let's accept it. And then since then there's been a progressive movement of the goalposts, even on gender issues or social issues um, to an extent whereby you can have, you can find almost any church advocating for almost any position. Right. I, that reminds me of something our, our caliph, Mr. Masoor Ahmed, His Holiness Mr. Masoor Ahmed, uh, may Allah strength, strength in his hand. 
what he said, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, but was that, you know, religion is here to teach society. Society is not here to teach religion. Yeah. Because often what we find in other religions is that they adapt so fully to society that they just blend in and they don't have anything to say. Um, so what you've just said and what you, and compare um, what you've said is also very useful because what we're saying then, there's two ways you can look at tolerance. One is objectivity having a fixed position and that's the actual ideal from an ideological perspective yeah whether something is objective a, reje- that's, a rejection of postmodernism. yeah that's what you found so beautiful that it there's some reality you're saying there is an ultimate reality and the other aspect is social tolerance which is how well you deal with others who have different views and this you also found in islam so it was like a double victory potentially it's a balance <laughs> and something i just realized as well sorry we're going to let you talk at some point during this interview <laughs> is you your name that you adopted as a muslim was abdul haq now yes. i never realized this it just struck me in this moment that Ab- haq means the truth why don't you tell the, us about that how, the, what was the your objective part? truth and abdul means the servant so tell us what that explain that for the viewers if they may not have understood from what i'm saying yeah it's nice that you mentioned it uh, actually, the name Abdul Haq was uh, thought of because of the similarity to my Dutch name, but um, uh, in, in a, just in the sound, okay. not in the meaning. Okay. But I'm very happy with the name because I realized when I look back that I was dissatisfied with this idea that there is no truth. Mm. And I like to uh, search for the truth in things. Mm. And I cannot stop until I find it, (laughs) right? And uh, also, I cannot bear it to not accept it when I find it. That's why I also accepted Islam. And that's what makes you a servant of the truth. So that's why I like the name now, in retrospect, when I look at, you know, what I think of myself after. So how was that process when you started? I mean, how did you even come think about Islam as, as the thing to look into? Yeah, so that is also uh, a sequence of personal experiences. You know, you can probably arrive at Islam step by step by academic research. So could you could you summarize 10 years in about five to six minutes? Is that okay with you? <laughs> I'll try. <laughs> I, I was raised without religion. Uh, and I understood from life that you have to just live it in the best way and have the most fun as possible. Okay. And uh, I thought, well... In Holland, I cannot do it because I like to do this uh, surfing on the ocean and I like to do the, the designing for all these surfing brands. I love to do that. So I moved to Australia thinking that I would have the perfect life there. Okay. But I didn't find the perfect life there. And this really struck me very fundamentally. And I remember that I was really shook uh, to, to the core to uh, realize that this plan really didn't work Mm. and so i came back to holland and you know i was just uh searching but also not really consciously searching for something and uh you know at some point some uh, fellow student advised me to read a certain book which uh, you might find interesting it's called zen and the art of motorcycle Mm. maintenance (laughs) yes you mentioned this to me yeah and uh, she mentioned this, then I forgot that she mentioned it, but then I went into house of another friend, actually in the UK it was, and uh, in front of me was a big bookcase with a lot of books, and this book 
just came out to me in my uh, in your vision in my vision yeah so then I uh, borrowed this book and I read it and this contained a philosophical argument which enabled me to believe in God mm. you know it not everybody who reads this book comes to this conclusion but for me it was uh, an argument that enabled me to believe in God and I was really happy with that um, but after a while I was thinking that okay this is a uh, God, the concept of God was more Islamic than the Christian mm. concept because it was a kind of an, uh, a presence in the universe and a creative force in the universe, uh, which actually also was a way out of relativism because it says that, uh, okay, the, the experience of truth and beauty and goodness is, uh, is in the subject. It is in the person. Uh, but the it is created by a force in the universe which is uh, not uh, subject. It is not relative. Yeah. So it is actually there. There is truth. Yeah. There is beauty in that thing. Yeah. Yeah. Although it's also in the eye of the beholder how he, they perceive it. So so the beholder finds it. Yeah. But there is an, a presence and there is a creative force in the universe which creates mm. these experiences. Yeah. Mm. It is quite, it can be quite close to Islamic uh, yeah, it is. uh, point of view. Um, but at the same time, I was thinking, okay, in the Quran and in the Bible, I knew that God was speaking. And I couldn't understand how this presence or this uh, energy would be speaking. Mm. And uh, this was uh, a time where I would uh, work in the university or the art academy late. I would uh, sometimes get food. So one day I was going to get food in the city where I was uh, studying in Rotterdam. And I walked into a small restaurant and um, this restaurant appeared to be um, owned by Ahmadis. All right. Ahmadi Muslims. Ahmadi Muslims, yes. And uh, I really had a special experience there. So I really experienced as if there was light in this shop. Mm. So I had actually kind of a mystical experience there. And uh, and by this point, were you praying to God? I was praying, yes. So you were seeking, you were praying and seeking God actively in the sense that you were asking for God. Yeah, it was more like uh, that I was so happy that I found God because because it is also a way it is also a way to be connected to the universe actually if you don't have any god you also feel quite disconnected oh wow yeah i was really happy with this uh, experience of 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 being part of the universe like in this way mm. so it was more like that i was praying to have contact with god mm. but uh, apparently god guided me towards this small restaurant where i could find more answers Mm. Yeah, and so this was my introduction to Islam, and from there on, I started researching into uh, Islam more. Mm -hmm. After about three years of reading, wow! I uh, <laughs> accepted uh, Islam, <laughs> and then so I would need five more minutes to summarize those three years. <laughs> Please have as much time as you want. <laughs> okay, so. I had this special experience there in, in this shop. And uh, what was the experience? If you could just mention that. Okay. So actually, at the first time I came there, yeah. I stood into the shop and I was uh, actually feeling um, uh, very awkward. 
feeling uh, very strange, as mm. if something was uh, having me in its grip, or I couldn't move, or I could have a difficulty breathing. Uh, and I was just looking at the uh, menu on the wall, mm. and um, but I couldn't say anything, and so I left without ordering anything. Oh, because you felt so uncomfortable. Yeah. And uh, so, but this old lady who was owning the shop uh, and who was trying to help me, she was just looking at me, very puzzled <laughs> that I had left again. And uh, so I left and I, I felt very uh, stupid because uh, I was thinking, I, I wanted to become a better person. I understood this much from uh, believing in God that you have to become a good person. Yeah. And I thought it was just very rude that I left without saying anything. Oh, I see. Uh, but uh, somehow I did have a reason to go back there. And a few months later, I think I went back there and I did order something. And at that time I sat down. And so you went back because you realized you'd been rude before and you wanted to make up for it? Or, or you just it saw it again be- and you remembered, oh, I should go there. I don't remember the exact reason why I went back. Yeah. It could be part that I felt guilty about it, but mm. I don't think that was the whole thing. Mm. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so I went back and I, I sit down and I eat something. And at that time, actually, it felt like there was so much light coming from the roof of the shop. That really? it was uh, just like, uh, it felt very calming on, the, on my whole being. And uh, it was um, also so, it seemed so bright that you could hardly uh, look in, into this uh, light. Mm. Although it was not a physical light, it yeah. was just, uh, it was an experience. They didn't have really strong lights or anything. It was, it was well, spiritual it in was nature. The, <laughs> they probably did have the tube lights. <laughs> but now, in retrospect, I know that you know we experience this light more often like exactly for with our khalifa yeah exactly. the same thing we sometimes it's it seems like it is physical physical yeah. light it it can um uh, it can be experienced in this way but sometimes it also just feels like it, there is this uh it is just an experience as if light is shining on you but you don't really see it mm. with your physical eyes i guess it's almost purer you know even physical life is a Physical light is almost like a reflection of the real light, of the spiritual light, and that's what you were kind of sensing with your soul, it seems. Yes, definitely. Yes. And and I remember saying to people that I took to this restaurant with me that I feel so good here, don't you feel the same? Oh, really? Would, and it would be, you know, it was just an old, small <laughs> shop with old furniture, and they would not have the same experience. So, um, so then you went okay. back to the shop and... Yeah, so I went. Uh, so I went back, and I had this experience. Then, after some time, I, I, uh, I went back there often, and then I got also interested in Islam. Mm. And at some point, I asked them to read the Quran uh, if I could borrow a Quran. Uh, and in reading the Quran, actually, my experience might be similar to what I experienced there in this shop, because when I first started reading the Quran, I, I did feel. Uh, also, uh, as if uh, you know, uh, as if I was afraid, or if uh, I was uh, in the grip of something, mm. and uh, and felt uh, as if it is um, you know a, a difficult experience. Uh, 
Okay. Overwhelmed? Yes, maybe, or, or just uh, similar to that experience in the shop the first time. Hmm. Although I, I didn't realize that when I was reading the Quran, it, it was similar to the shop. I realized this, this later. But, uh, but after reading the Quran, if I would close it, then I would feel really calm. And uh, at some point I read a verse in the Quran that says that if a believer reads this book, then he, first his uh, skin uh, cringes or something. It, uh, skin is, uh, yes, his skin is... Yes, his skin um, creeps. Yeah, his skin creeps like the when you the hairs stand up on upon your arm. Right, like this. Yeah, the skin so creeps. First, there is kind of an experience of fear or something, mm. and then his heart is uh, opened for the guidance of Allah. Yeah, that it it melts. Yeah, yeah, or it it's hard. The heart is softens. Yeah, softened. Yeah. So I thought, well, this is exactly how I experienced reading this book. So it is quite amazing that this book can know. <laughs> how I feel when I read it after 1400 years yeah that's true right so this must really be uh, so this was one of the reasons why I really believed that the Quran was uh, from God and uh, so at that point I knew that I wanted to be a Muslim I felt I believed in the Quran mm. so I think in my heart I was a Muslim but I already also studied so much that I knew that there were different groups, uh, of course, because I met the uh, Amdi Muslims who were also explaining this to me, that they were a separate group. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I did next was I, I went to study in a university where they would uh, teach uh, Oriental languages Okay. Uh, in Holland. Uh, it is uh, actually from the time, uh, like uh, the 16th century, this was started, this university. It is also the time where my paper is about. Right. And it also shows the link with uh, the Muslim world. Anyway, I uh, went to study in this university with the intention to meet also with other Muslims of different groups. Hmm. Because I knew that they would be studying there. And I wanted which, to which know... Which university was this? It is in Leiden. It was Leiden, Leiden university. university. Yeah. And, uh, it's a very famous university for Oriental studies, isn't it? And Islam in particular. Wasn't Einstein there as well? He lived there for some time. Uh, and uh, but anyway, so my intention was to to answer the question that okay, I have this experience with this group, but mm -hmm. I have no experience with religion at all. Yeah. So maybe other groups uh, can have the same experience. I don't know yet. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to know their the experience with them as well. And so I talked to the Moroccans and the Turks, and uh, there came some uh, religious uh, teacher from Egypt, from Indonesia, and you had the Orientalists as well there who would talk in their own way about Islam. Hmm. And uh, so after two years talking to all these people and also researching the theology, uh, it wasn't as easy as now to really understand, to quickly understand what is the main differences between the different groups. Yeah. There was no internet yet. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so I really had to find. So you had to go and actually speak to people and. Visit libraries. Libraries. Yeah. And <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And what was that like? <laughs> well, you know, for example, about, about this uh, peculiar subject about the uh, 
Seal of the Prophets, mm. which is a main controversy point of controversy between the different groups. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I remember that I was really in the uh, library in uh, one of the mosques in Holland, in Nunspeet, and it was such a dusty and old place where so many books were lying around. And I was just looking for something about the subject, and I, or I came across something about the subject, at least. It was just a very small booklet yeah. written by Abdurrahim Dart in the 1940s. Wow. And this, uh, it, it was excellent. It had so many inform so much information. Yeah. But, you know, I had to do, now you can just uh, Google it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, uh, so I had to do that as well and talk to the people. And after two years of doing that, I realized that the spiritual experience of the Amdeya community was the best. Mm. And uh, also the, uh, they were right about the main uh, subject of the controversy, like the death of Jesus. Yeah, peace be upon him, and about the seal of the prophets. Uh, the, prof the the Ahmadi Muslims believe that D Jesus died, yeah. and that he he himself will not return to the world, right. but that the founder of our community, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, peace be upon him, was the second coming, not in the sense of a reincarnation, but in the sense of bearing the same title and name because he has the same function for the Muslims as Jesus did for the Jews. Yes. Right. So, so that was extremely... So I was, was completely convinced from all these... Uh, yeah. and then I accept. It strikes me that you've kind of, you explored Islam with your head and your heart together. You kind of had the spiritual experiences and you're looking for the spiritual aspect of things. And you're also really intellectual about it. Was that something quite conscious that you were making sure you were covering both bases? Or was that just the natural flow of things? Yeah, I wasn't really conscious of the mind and the heart uh, thing. Hmm. But I did want to... Maybe it was because I wanted to be able to explain I, what I was doing mm. because it was uh, quite strange as it is still today. Mm. And I always love this uh, saying of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, that Islam will end as it started, which is something strange. Yeah. And there is good news for the strangers. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I always love this saying of his. And... Um, so it, I also felt that it was a bit strange what I was doing. So I wanted to be able to explain it. Hmm. And so that's why probably it, it got a kind of a scientific uh, aspect to it that I thought, okay, I have had this experience, hmm. but I don't know if this is unique to this group. Hmm. Let's find out if I can have the same experience in other groups. Hmm. And if not, then this group must be true. The proof of the pudding is in the just like a yeah. medical experience almost. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Experiment. So just following on from that, those in the Western world who are dissatisfied with the subjectivity of everything, the moral relativism of everything, and are looking into Islam or are just seeking something else, what would be your advice? Yeah. So after 20 years, I would say that Islam is uh, the answer uh, from many points of view, mm. because uh, it is not true that that there is that there are two sides to this uh, this uh, discussion about relativism. For example, for example, you cannot uh, you cannot actually solve the problems that relativism causes, uh, wherein everything becomes uh, relative and fluid. Mm. Uh, you cannot actually solve it by making everything fixed again. And, and this is actually also, which is uh, 
probably in the first chapter of the Quran, that the true way is the revelations of God mm. and the guidance of God and the distractions of the way are the um, people going astray, mm. which is which you might say is relativism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, everything becomes relative. And the other way is to fix everything. Oh, I see. Dogmatism. Yeah, as if uh, uh, extremism. Yeah. And so... Um, Those who incur God's wrath is the, is the phrase you're referring to there. Yeah, but, but then uh, what these people are usually become are people who are really too particular about things and cannot relativize anymore, have, take everything out of context. Hmm. Yeah. Like the extremists yeah. that everybody knows. Yeah. yeah. And you have extremists, of course, in, in religion, but you now have extremism also in the woke movement. Yeah. And um, anyway, so, so why is Islam such a good way to, to choose is that uh, you also have a very strong uh, mystical part, uh, which is that every human being has a direct relation with God mm. and can communicate with God. And that um, religion is also something that can be interpreted uh, from time to time by divine guidance. Mm. Mm. And, uh, and when you say communication with God, you mean a two-way communication. You mean that you speak to God and God communicates back to you. Is that, is that what you get, you're getting at there? Yes. So, so this aspect is... And, but also, it also can, uh, we can take this book of uh, the Zen and the Art of, Art of Motorcyclists in again, <laughs> because it's quite similar to Islamic mystical philosophy, and uh, which is uh, kind of makes the point that the truth cannot be known completely, because God <laughs> is, uh, the essence of God cannot be known. God reveals himself continuously. And so uh, you have to f you have to follow the continuous uh, revelation of God. You have to find the source of the of spirituality and guidance, mm. which is different from both sides. Mm. Like the relativism, it is different from relativism, but it's also different from extremism. I think I have a I have a quote of the Quran which perfectly summarizes what you're saying which is in chapter 6, verse 104, which is, eyes cannot reach him, but he reaches the eyes, and he is the incomprehensible, the all-aware. So in a way, God cannot be defined. You can't subject God to your measurement, but God will reveal of himself what is within your capability uh, of perceiving him. And this is the essence of Islamic teachings with respect to the life after death, that you don't die and then it's all, you know, uh, sitting around uh, partying all day long. The, the afterlife is a continuous process of discovery of God with a heightened set of faculties for appreciating and knowing God. And God will continue to reveal himself to us in that condition. And that process will be infinite because God's uh, essence is unlimited and, and God's aspects are unlimited. And so there's no end to seeking him. So um, this is an important thing that I want to say to these people who are looking for truth now in society. Mm. It's a difficult point to understand maybe, but maybe it is they can understand this thing that either complete relativism or extremism, they are both not 
hmm. solutions. So hmm. if you are dissatisfied with the complete relativism of uh, contemporary society, wherein even our bio biology is threatened, hmm. uh, and then it will, it can re uh, create such a reaction where people go into the ways of extremism, yep. but it will not be the right solution in the end. But the true Islam is that spiritual Islam where you will find continuous uh, revelation, continuous guidance, uh, and it is a more subtle way of uh, practicing religion. So what you just said there is very beautiful because you've, you've made a point of continuous revelation. And most Muslims who are watching this would deeply object to the idea of continuous revelation. And in fact, it's a specific Ahmadi Muslim view that um, the final law for mankind, the final law, the final teaching that you must follow in life is the Quran. And that is final. And that is the last. And that's why the Prophet Muhammad is the last law-bearing prophet. That's why he is the seal of the prophets. But the process of revelation, which is to bring people back to the correct understanding of that teaching that will continue to occur as long as humanity exists through prophets. And that's what Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, came, claimed to be one such individual. So in a way, what you're saying is that not just Islam, but actually specifically the Ahmadiyya Muslim community is a perfect balance between the dogmatism of saying everything that has been interpreted in the past, that's all there ever is, which is what a lot of Salafis and Wahhabis say. Mm. Um, and the balance between that, but also pure relativism, they're saying that there's a new religion completely every single generation, that everything has to be reinvented. Baha'ism. Baha'ism kind of uh, philosophy whereby, you know, God's going to send a new prophet every generation, right? Yeah. So Ahmadi Islam is the perfect balance in a sense. Uh, you know, that's what I'm taking from what you're saying, which is that it, it fixes the law and the teaching in the Quran, mm -hmm. but recognizes that for every age, whenever mankind drifts away from that teaching, we need an exemplar and an exemplar an example to bring us back to that teaching and that person must be divinely guided. And that's actually what the Prophet Muhammad said. That's why he prophesied that there will come a time when, you know, the Muslims will go astray and they will be sent to the Mahdi. The Mahdi means the guided one. Mm. So you wouldn't need a Mahdi who's guided by God unless you have become misguided, right? Which actually also answers the question. People say, well, how can there be uh, a Mahdi? How could there be a prophet or how can there be a person to guide us when we have the Quran? Well, the Prophet Muhammad himself knew that the Quran would still be there but that Muslims would go as train would need a, a reformer and a guide. Yes. Just to summarize, I mean, you've really very beautifully kind of answered the main issue in the West, which is kind of this um, rampant subjectivity and the cognitive dissonance that this gives people. Mm -hmm. You're saying objectivity, there is something which is objective, which is haq, and it is our job to be Abdul haq, to be the servants of that truth. And each one of us will have a slightly different relationship with the objective truth. And therefore, our subjective experiences are legitimate. Mm. But that doesn't mean that there is nothing objective and ultimate. So we must reject the dogmatism of those who say everything is final, definite, every experience is objective. And, uh, you know, we, we, can't, we, can't, we, have to, we have to reject all forms of relativism. And we also have to reject the extremism of the pure relativists and find the middle way which is kind of the meaning of Islam. Yeah, but the nice point about the middle way in Islam is that it is not a compromise. Sometimes it is a compromise. Right. Like sometimes it is a compromise of being a little bit lenient about yeah, your views. teachings or yeah. something. Um, but the actual middle way, which is in Surah Fatiha, the uh, Sirat al-Mustaqim, 
mm. people who have, are receiving God's blessings, that's actually a middle way that is continuously revealed. Mm. And that is guided by revelation mm. and not by compromise. Thank you very much. You're welcome. That was a podcast from our colleagues at Rational Religion. You've been listening to Weekend World on The Voice of Islam. Please join us again soon.